We, I told you guys that I recorded my phone, okay. I'm always afraid somebody's going to think I'm texting. Um, this morning we're starting a new series um, that looks at the genealogy of Jesus. And it asks the question, he came from where? Uh, and the idea is just based off of the holiday season. I don't know how many of you, um, but you start seeing relatives that you don't see throughout the whole year. And sometimes you encounter some of your relatives and you're like, wow, I can't believe we're from the same lineage, right? And, and so when you read through Matthew chapter 1, if you do, I, I don't know, I gave you an honest confession last week and I'll say it again this week, that I sadly have to admit to you, if I'm reading the book of Matthew, I tend to start in Matthew chapter 2. So I understand that we kind of breeze through cha- chapter 1, but when we look through chapter 1, all the characters in the lineage of Jesus... It's crazy to think that he came from those people. Now, we know that the earthly father is where he came, but to think that they're in the same line is, is sometimes astonishing. Um, something that I do that I think a lot of parents do, especially fathers, is uh, anytime my kids are acting up, um, they're my wife's kids. Did anybody ever do that? Uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, yesterday, one of my children, uh, to remain nameless, um, Zeke, when he was told some apocalypse, apocalyptic chore to do. Like the world was coming to an end because I said, clean your room. And so uh, instead of wanting to clean his room, we end up in debate for 30 minutes. And, and, but he, he likes to stomp his feet and talk as he's walking away, which I can't stand. And, and so I told him as he's walking away, I told him to stop acting like his mother. Uh, and, and I've learned that that's how I am, right? When my kids bring home good grades, I'll go, just like your dad taught you, you know? But when they act up, I tell them they act like their mom. When we look at our upbringing, or even when we look at Jesus, like we read the lineage of Jesus, we know who Abraham is. We're like, yeah, Abraham's in there. We're like, yeah, David's in there. And we celebrate all these characters that we know had incredible stories, but there's also some of them that are mixed in there that God wasn't very happy with them. Some of them he took their life a little early because of their uh, failures and their misbehavior. And and they are all a part of the story of Jesus. I I can't tell you a lot of my mistakes because I tend to suppress those. And all of us do that. If you ask me about my school, I can't tell you much about growing up in school. I'm sure that I got in trouble. But I can tell you about the time in fifth grade that we did the science project. And I built a volcano that... uh, was, was just really amazing. I can remember that. And I can't tell you about the grades I made, but I can tell you the one time that I made an A in algebra, and, and I was really excited about it. We suppressed the bad, and we like to bring to light the good. And so looking at the story of Jesus, especially this that he's facing with the people that are in his life, we have to look at all those. Um, so some of the questionable people we're going to look at today... We're not going to skip over Matthew chapter 1. We're going to read it, and we're going to understand some of the people. We don't have time to go through every single person, but we're going to. Um, There's names that are hard to pronounce, and so together we will butcher them, um, and that'll be okay. If we agree that that's the name, then that's what it'll be for us. Uh, um, But each of the individuals listed in the genealogy of Jesus, they were uh, very, very important. And so each of these names played a major role in the place Jesus called home and the race for which he was born into. And so they're very important people. And so over the coming weeks, we're going to look at some very major 
uh, names a little closer. We'll look at David and Solomon. Uh, we know those names. We'll look at a man named Salmon and his wife Rahab because we know who they are. We'll look at a couple named Boaz and Ruth. We know who they are. Um, but today I want to talk about some of the obscure ones. And so I've titled the message today, Distant Relatives. Let's pray. God, thank you for our time that you've given us. God, as we celebrate the thank- and be thankful for the things you've done in our lives this year, God, we celebrate Miss Ella Ruth, that you brought her into our church family. Lord, that we've been impacted by her life. We're so grateful for that today. Lord, we just ask as we enter into this time of worship through your word, God, that you would speak to our hearts. God, that you would see our shortcomings. God, maybe we look at our own family tree and go, I can't believe this is there. Well, that you would help us overcome those things and help us to see the most important figure in any genealogy is you. And so, Lord, help us to be aware of that. Help us to be convicted of that. And we'll give you glory in Christ's name. Amen. I I, I was curious to see... um, Today we're going to talk about different types of relatives that show up at things. And, and so I printed out this thing called the 10 types of people at family gatherings, okay? And I'm going to read them off to you. And here's what I would tell you. If you hear the name and you go, that doesn't sound like somebody in my family, you're that person, okay? <laughs> so there's the, uh, these are the 10 people they say that you can find at every family gathering. The grandpa who's constantly ta- uh, taking a nap or dozing off. Um, this one, we're Baptists, so this one really doesn't apply. Number two says the drunk aunt with the bottomless glass of wine. We know that we don't have that in our families. Um, the kid who's always crying. The new boyfriend or girlfriend who looks immensely uncomfortable. The weird cousin you swear had to have been adopted. The newborn baby that everyone takes, takes a turn to hold. The grandmother who permanently lives in the kitchen and creates edible gold. The teenager who hates life. The uncle who bores everyone with stories of his glory days. And the person that shows up late, leaves early, and is probably there just for the food. So all of those people you can find at a family gathering. Um, and you can probably identify yourself there. Uh, so today I, I want to have some fun over this series. I want us to look at if Jesus was sitting at a big table for, for some dinner, all these characters were sitting at the table, who would they be in relation to what we understand family to be? Um, I want to start off by saying that you find two genealogies in the New Testament. You find in Matthew chapter 1, which is the one that we're going to look at today, you also see in Luke chapter 3, there's another genealogy. Now, if you look at it, you'll probably go, what's so different? Why do we have to have two genealogies? Well, if you were to look at it, you would see that Matthew's genealogy and, and Luke 3, his genealogy, they're exactly the same all the way to David. And then from David, they take a turn. Uh, the one in Matthew goes from David to Solomon. And then that's how that lineage carries on. And the one in Luke goes from David to Nathan, his son. And, and that's how that lineage carries on. If you want to know the difference, Matthew does a genealogy of Joseph, who is his earthly father. And the, we call that the legal genealogy. We would have known that, so any Jew would have saw that. The only way Jesus could have ever been traced back was not through Mary, it would have been through Joseph. And so that's the legal genealogy of Jesus. Luke chapter 3 is what we call the blood genealogy of Jesus. It's through Mary. All right, I want to point out a few things. One is that it's important that both genealogies trace back to David because David was made a promise. Initially in Samuel chapter 7 by Nathan the prophet, um, but it's kind of summarized in, in First Chronicles. I want to read it to you. This is the summary of the promise from God. When your days are over, speaking to David, and you go to be with your ancestors... I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, 
one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. And he is the one who will build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. I will never take my love away from him, as I took it away from your predecessors. I will set over I will set him over my house and my kingdom forever, and his throne will be established forever. You read that, it may seem a little unclear, but that is a prophecy. Uh, we call it the David Covenant, right? This is the prophecy that one day the Messiah would come from the lineage of David. It was a promise, just like Abraham was promised to be the father of many nations, and he gave birth to Jacob, who gave birth to what we know as the 12 tribes. He also made a promise to David. That Davis, David, who was the apple of God's eye, would one day have in his bloodline Jesus Christ. He would have the Messiah in his bloodline. And so whether you trace it through his blood or his legal lineage, um, both of Jesus' genealogies trace back to David. Now we know that Luke's genealogy is through Mary because in Luke 3.23 it says, He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph. The son of Heli. Well, Heli is Mary's father. So it was not a very uncommon thing. It would be uh, like my mother-in-law's name is Teresa. And they would call me the son of Teresa. Well, I'm not her actual son. I'm her son-in-law. That's what it's saying here. He's not actually the son of this man. He's actually the son-in-law of this man. And that's why the lineage is different. So they're not the same. Matthew and Luke both have subtle wordings to remind us that Jesus was not created by man. Matthew says, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus who was called the Messiah. If you were to read the lineage in Matthew chapter 1, you would see that every one of them goes, Abraham, the father of Isaac, Isaac, the father of Jacob, until we get to Joseph, where it doesn't say in Joseph, the father of Jesus. It says, Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who was called the Messiah. A little subtle thing that reminds us that Jesus wasn't made of man. Luke says, he was the son, so it was thought of Joseph. Saying that people believed him to be the son of Joseph because they had to tell that initially because Mary would have been outcast of the city. Um, so it was thought that he was a son, but he's not. His blood lineage actually goes through Mary. Uh, But we're going to work off of Matthew 1, since it is the legal lineage that the Jews would have observed. Um, And so I want to have a little bit of fun while we look at some of these characters. And I want them to relate to the family members that we have the pleasure of celebrating the holiday season with. Let me ask this question. How many of you have um, that by-the-book family member? Right? It's, It's the one that corrects everything you say. And the one that does not allow any of the rules to be broken. Remember, if you can't think of them, it might be you. Right? Like the kids aren't going to run in front of this family member. They're the family member that the kids are going chaotic. But you see like this little island where kids won't even dare cross. And that's the by the book family member who is not going to let things get out of control. They're going to make sure things are organized. They're going to make sure that if somebody says something wrong, they're corrected. They're by the book. Well, in Jesus' lineage... He had a family member who was that. His name was Asa, A-S-A. In some places they call him Masa with an H on it, but it's uh, Asa. Asa was the third king of Judah, and he was the fifth king of the lineage of David. It's meaning that he was removed that many times from David. The Bible tells us that for 41 years he ruled uh, as a king. 
which is an incredible thing because if you ever read the tenure of kings, 41 years is a super long one because they don't tend to be in reign very long. So Asa followed behind his brother, whose name was Abijah, as you'll clearly read that name in there, and the kingdom was a mess. And so at the urging of the prophet Azariah, Asa began to purge Judah of his idols. And so if you can imagine, he came in and and uh, we'll talk in a little bit, but the kingdoms were broken up. You had a northern kingdom, which had ten tribes. And then you had the kingdom of Judah, which was, uh, was, had it broken off from them. He was the king over Judah, not over the northern tribes. And so, as king of Judah, he inherited a mess from his father. And so he decided, at the urging of a prophet, that he was going to clean up and return them back to their Jewish heritage. And so he began this major mission of cleaning up Judah and making it a, 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 a recognized place for worshiping of the true God. And so anything that was idolatry, any island set up, or, or excuse me, some shrine set up to any foreign gods, he had every one of those things destroyed. And after having all those things destroyed, he decided that the nation would enter into a covenant together. And for 35 years, after he cleaned it up, they had peace. And during that peace, he decided that he was going to revamp and reinforce the fortress built by his grandfather, Rehoboam. And so they began to fix and make things even better where their defenses were really kind of scaring people off. Well, finally, we read in Second Chronicles that Asa kind of repelled a raid that was led by a man named Zerah. He was an Egyptian-backed chieftain of Ethiopia. And so he was an Ethiopian leader. And so he decided he was going to attack Judah, not Israel, Judah. And so with over a million soldiers and 300 chariots, they did just that. Only to find that with 580,000 men... Asa was able to beat them and and take them down. You read this. This is an incredible man. By the book, if you say, I need to clean the place up, I'm going to clean the place up. If you say no anti-Jew beliefs are going to be in place, then we're going to get those out of here. He was a by-the-book guy. But something happened. Because his reign doesn't end the same way it started. He threw the prophet Hananiah, who I know some of you have heard that name, Hananiah in jail, and he began to oppress the Jews. Asa, uh, in his 39th year of reign, he developed this severe disease in his foot. And instead of seeking the help of God, he began to seek the help of physicians. Well, two years later, he would die from that very disease and be buried in the grave that he dug for himself. A by-the-book man. In the end, lost his way. Now, he comes from a lineage that that's not an uncommon thing. But what we see in the genealogy of Jesus is he kind of embodies all the negative, I mean, excuse me, all the positive things of the people within his lineage. Think about this. The good of Asa is seen in Jesus and helps us understand why he would flip a table over when there was unrighteous things happening in a righteous place. Why? Because he came from a man named Asa who walked into a kingdom and said, this cannot be tolerated any longer. And he began to do the very same thing, flip things over. And so we see the influence of King Asa 
on Jesus when Jesus began to go through his ministry. And so that's one family member that comes. We have a King Asa that comes and they're the by the book and they tell us how things should be done. We also have the relative that comes that feel like they have something to prove, right? Um, they're the ones who try to one-up your story. You say, yeah, the other day I was fishing, I caught an 8-pound bass. They're the one that says, I caught a 12-pound bass in that same fishing hole. They're the ones that when you talk about how good your kids are doing in school, they have a bumper sticker on the back of there that says, my kid is in the honor roll, right? They're the ones that want to prove to you that they're good people. You have to know how good my family is. You have to know how good I am. You have to know how good this is. I'm great at my job. They have something to prove. Well, he had somebody like that in his lineage. And I already mentioned his name, but his name was Rehoboam. Now, Rehoboam, you don't get a lot of information about, but we know something very important. That he's the grandson of David, the son of Solomon. Can you imagine the expectations on you? Right? I mean, it's like, uh, I'll relate it to today. Uh, on, on Sports Center, every once in a while, they'll show highlights of the sixth grade year, uh, kid who is LeBron James' son. You're like, man, that kid's got so much to live up to, right? How is he not doing stuff already? This is would have been equivalent on such a higher level to what Rehoboam would have faced. His granddad was David, who people loved. His father was Solomon, who we know as the wisest man to ever walk this earth. And then there's Rehoboam. All right, how many times do you feel that way? You come from a family, you're like, man, everybody is smart but me. How did this happen, right? Or maybe you look and go, how are we all smart? And they're not, right? This would have been the pressure that Rehoboam would have felt. Oh, and to make things worse, when Solomon died and Rehoboam took over, the kingdom split. Up until Solomon's death, every place was together and they called it the United Nations of Israel. And then when Solomon died, some people began to rebel a little bit and that's when we had them break up a little bit. And then, and then a man named Ephraim began to lead a, re- a rebel against this. And, and so you had ten northern kingdoms, which ten tribes. And then you had the place of Judah. And so here's Rehoboam, who's grown up in the shadows of his grandfather, the shadows of his father. He's going, finally I get to be the king of Israel, and everybody gets to see how good I am. And then when he takes over, he only gets one out of the 11 countries. And he's probably thinking, that's exactly how I would expect it to be. And then to add to all that, Rehoboam is the product of the fall of Solomon. As Solomon married a woman named Naamah, who was an Ammonite, and Solomon built shrines to the foreign gods to appease his foreign wives. And this was the downfall. And this is actually why God looked at Solomon and said, I'm going to rip away the rulership from you, but the only reason I'm going to let your son have it is because of David. God was so disgusted with what Solomon had become. And the product of the downfall of Solomon is actually pictured in the birth of a child named Rehoboam. Rehoboam was the product of the woman who had kind of led Solomon into building these shrines to foreign gods. So imagine sitting at the dinner table with Rehoboam, the grandson of David, the son of Solomon, who before you could even really start leading, saw a big rebel and now you lead one out of 11 kingdoms. And then when people talk about the downfall of Solomon, they can look over at him and go, it's because of his mom. Can you imagine? He was the one who sat at the table when they're talking about the good things of Solomon and David, who was probably like, well, they weren't that good. 
If you remember, he slept with Bathsheba. Do we need to bring that up? You know, he's that one at the table who's going to remind you of the bad of everybody, right? Anybody got a friend member like that? Things start going good at the table. Like, do you remember that time when you were a kid and you lied to mom and dad? I know we're 55 years old, but you need to remember that, right? There's always that one person in the family, and Rehoboam had to do that. He had something to prove because he felt the deck was stacked against him. You know, the ancestor, his ancestry absolutely impacted Jesus, who, as a son of God, spoke of the Father and not of himself. If anybody ever had room to prove something for themselves, it was Jesus. He comes from this fractured picture of what a marriage looks like. He is somebody who is God, but nobody really knows that yet. He's like, I could prove it, but... If I do that, then they're going to write something about it. I, I don't know what to do. And there was anybody who could have that burden of proving that they were better than what they were. It was Jesus. But he learned from his ancestry, I'm sure. And he probably looked back at Rehoboam and said, you know, I probably shouldn't do those things because it didn't turn out very well for him. Rehoboam had a very short rule and um, didn't die the most pleasant way. And Jesus could look at that and go, yeah, this is going to impact me because I have nothing to prove through words. I'll prove it through actions. How many of you have the family member, this is going to hit home for some of you, um, that's the overachiever, right? The overachieving family member. It's the one that goes and washes the dishes before anybody tells them they have to go do it. Or the one who begins to set the table and nobody has told them to do that yet. Or, or they bring the elaborate meal and you're like, how do you do that with seven kids, two jobs, a husband that's demanding? How do you do that? It's because they're an overachiever. And every family has that overachiever who sits, on the, sits at the table with them and you go, I don't even know how you even function in life with all the things you do. Let me tell you, there is somebody in the story of Jesus who was absolutely an overachiever unintentionally. We read about this man named Nashon, and you may not know him other than reading his name, but Jewish history tells us a lot about who he is. First, we do know from the book of Numbers that Nashon was a tribal leader during the wilderness wanderings in the book of Numbers. So he was an important person. They often called these tribal leaders princes, and so he was a prince of whatever tribe he was in charge of. Now, Jewish history tells us that during the Exodus, when the Israelites reached the Red Sea, it did not automatically part. So Moses spoke, and God, before, he didn't part it right away. Jewish history tells us that the Israelites stood at the banks of the sea, and they wailed with despair. But Nashon entered the waters, and once he was up to his nose in water, the sea parted. He's the overachiever who says, no, God, God's going to part the water. I mean, I'll just walk. He's going to, at some point, he's going to part it. This Jewish history tells us that this is who he was. When the princes of the different tribes were required to bring their offerings, each on a separate day, Moses was embarrassed because he didn't know who was supposed to bring their offering first. And all the people at that time pointed at Nashon and they said this, He sanctified the name of God by springing first into the Red Sea. He is worthy to bring down the Shekinah. Therefore, he shall be the first to bring the offering. No doubt that Nashon being in the lineage of Christ influenced the overachieving attitude of Christ. And when I say overachieving attitude of Christ, I'm not talking about how I just want to do something so people recognize how great I am. Christ went above and beyond the call of action. 
Christ could have simply died for our sins and things would have been okay. But he did something miraculous. He came and walked in man's flesh. He faced the obstacles and the challenges that we face every single day and looked it all in the face and remained sinless. And then instead of dying some quick death that would have quickly paid the price for sin, he hung on a sinner's cross so that we in turn would not have to do that. If you want to talk about overachieving this, it's that. That you look and say, I want to understand what you're going through. I want to be able to say, I've been there and I've overcome it. And so I'm going to do those things. And that was Jesus' attitude as he faced the world head on. He was, no doubt, influenced through the lineage by a man named Nashon. Nashon who looked at obstacles and said, we can, we can do that. Nashon who was an impactful man. Nashon was a man who was thankful for the things that he faced. And we're thankful that Jesus was an overachiever and that his relative Nashon was an overachiever because today, as Christians, we can overcome things through that same mentality of looking at sin and going, it doesn't control my life. I know everybody else it does, but I can achieve greater things. It doesn't control me. Lastly, I want to uh, I have two, two more family members I'll ask you about, and they'll be quick. One is... Uh, how many of you have the family member um, that is absolutely going to fall asleep during the gathering no matter what? Food or not involved. They're the one that sits in the chair that, and they wake themselves up. Um, my granddaddy was that person. He would fall asleep. Now my mom is that person. That they fall asleep. I'm just kidding. She's not, she's not that person. Uh, I'm probably that person. I can't take it. Um, you're looking at them and, and you're asking the question, did you just come to eat and sleep or, or what do you bring to the table? Like you, you're just kind of taking up space. And, and so we ask the question, why are you here? But then you hear, because it tends to be like the grandfather, but then you hear about all the amazing things this patriarch of the family did. And you're like, all right, you've earned it. You can sleep after our gathering. That's no problem. You know, when I think about that person at our family dinner, there's a man that comes to mind in the lineage of Jesus. His name was Aminadab. And I know when you hear that word, it makes you want to dab, but that's not what it means. That person is Aminadab. And Aminadab is Nashon's father. That's an important thing. But he's also the father-in-law of another prominent person named Aaron. So think about it. We hear nothing about who Aminadab is. If you go on Wikipedia, they give you one sentence. If you look in the Bible, you find his name when it's mentioned with other names, but you don't get much about what he did. And so you're like, why did you even come to the lineage? You don't bring anything to the table. What, are you just sleeping, eating, and then leaving? But really we find that he was such a catalyst for the man, the man that Nashon became, but he was undoubtedly very impactful in Aaron's life as well. And Aaron was the right-hand man of Moses. He was the mouthpiece. Moses didn't want to speak. He wanted Aaron to be the mouthpiece for him. And so when you think about the impact that Aminadab really had, think about what he influenced. He influenced a man that we celebrate named Nashon. Another man who we look at in certain situations and we go, who could do what Aaron does? Nobody can. And he had somebody in his ear named Aminadab. He's the one who shows up and you're like, I don't know why you're here, but we know that you're an influence, so come and eat and sleep and enjoy yourself. See, we don't see that immediate result. It's when we look back that we realize the major role that he played. And that quiet, subtle approach was passed on to Jesus. How many times do we read a passage that Jesus did not 
hit those hearing until didn't hit, what he said didn't hit people until they got down the road where you're like that was subtle but that was good right or or we read a story even today we read the stories of Jesus and we go I didn't even see that that is good it was that subtle approach that a men and dad have that now Jesus has that this subtle quiet leader who had such a great impact that sometimes didn't even get credit for it. You know, if you ever read the story, and here's here's how insignificant we can view people sometimes, because I can't even tell you his name, but there was a time that a big rally was taking place, and only one person came to the altar. You guys ever heard the story? And the guy that came to the altar, his name was William Graham, and the guy kind of felt like it was not a very successful gathering, and and little did he know that the man that he impacted would go on to impact millions of people. That's really kind of the effect that we read about Aminadab, though he's not a very vocal, prominent person, but the impact he had in people's lives is what changes it. Jesus wasn't the most outspoken. He was quiet. He was subtle. But what he did changed our lives today. It was important that he be in the ancestry of Jesus. And, and lastly, in my favorite, um, everybody has the new baby at a family gathering that everybody wants to hold, right? You want to see what that looks like? Let little Riley come into the sanctuary and let my wife be anywhere with an earshot of her and she would just get up and go and grab the baby because we all have that natural instinct. We see a little baby in Walmart. We just want to take it out of the carry and be like, I know you don't know me, but I love babies and I want to hold on them. And so we all have that person at the gathering, but I'm going to tell you, Everybody knows who Judah was, right? We don't have to go over who he was. He was um, a very prominent within Jacob's sons. Well, Judah had a son, and his name was Perez. Now, when you look at it in the Bible, it looks like Perez, but he was not Hispanic. He was Jewish. So his name was Perez. Um, and so Perez, the name Perez means breaking out. But here's the cool thing. Perez was a twin, and he had a pretty cool entrance into the world. I want to read it to you. This is the, his story, Genesis 38, 27 to 30. When the time came for her to give birth, and this is Tamar, who, is, who uh, Judah's having a baby with, um, there were twin boys in her womb. As she was giving birth, one of them put his hand out, so the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it to his wrist and said, this one came out first. But when he drew back his hand, his brother came out and said, and come out, and she said, so this is how you have broken out. And he was named Peretz, which means breaking out. Then his brother, who had the scarlet thread on his wrist, came out, and he was named Zara. Can you imagine what that would be like to be there? Like, the midwife is ready to deliver the baby. A baby's arm comes out. She ties a string to it. Go, All right, that's the firstborn. We'll go ahead and mark the baby. And then a baby comes out that doesn't have the string on it, and you're like... How did you break out in front of your brother? It's an incredible birth story that would easily be a TLC documentary about how it happened. And I I imagine everybody wanted to hold the baby that broke out in front of his brother. They were probably like, that's a cool story. Let me hold Perez. That's, That's an amazing story. And you're probably wondering, well, how does this relate to Jesus? Well, Jesus broke through, catch that, in a neat way. But not, not only did Jesus break through in this miraculous way, his breakthrough caused a breakout in our world. And because Jesus broke through in this unique way, we now have this breakthrough where grace has been imparted into our life. 
Had Jesus not busted through our atmosphere and came to our world, we couldn't stand here today and sing the praise songs that we sang and get ready to celebrate and have this joy of the grace that's in our life. I'm sure the ancestry of Peretz in the life of Jesus was impactful in the fact that he knew if I could just break out, I know that things will begin to break out. And that began to happen as Jesus impacted life after life and he hung on a cross and they said there's no way this breakout, breakthrough man is going to change anybody's life. And through his death, he changed all of our lives. That today we can accept the greatest gift in this Christmas holiday, which is the gift of everlasting life. That we can look death in the face and say, you don't have any control over me. We can take the approach of the overachiever and say, sin doesn't control me any longer. We can look at the life of, of each of these people and go, wow, they're impactful in my ancestry. And I know you're probably listening to this and go, that's cool. But none of those people are like the people that's in my family tree. My family tree has affected me more than this could ever explain. Here's the greatest news ever. Each genealogy of Jesus ends at his birth. And here's what's even greater. Genealogies at the time were kept in the temple. I don't know if you know this, but Matthew and Luke wrote their gospels. And in 70 AD, the temple was destroyed. And a lot of the genealogies were lost. And so a lot of new genealogies were started. And on that day, when Jesus rose again, a new genealogy was started in our life. And it doesn't matter how messed up your family is. You get to hit the restart button. And you can start from a fresh place. And that fresh place is with Jesus as the leader. I love it because God looked at a broken people and said, I want to adopt you into my family. I know it's going to have a pretty big cost. I'm willing to pay that price because I want you in my family. And through the adoption in that moment, we got a clean genealogy. And today you can, you can look at your family and go, they're crazy, they're messed up, but it's just a part of my story. We can tell it in the book of Matthew that they were crazy people. But moving forward, let me tell you the exciting news. And it's that Jesus loved me so much, he gave his life, started me afresh, and now I can be the impactful, quiet leader. I can be the overachiever. I can be the one who wants to prove how great Jesus is. I want to be the one that causes a breakthrough. I want to be the embodiment of what the great characteristics were of each one of these men we spoke about today. Let's pray. God, thank you this morning that you love us, you care for us, that you chose to enter our world in this Christmas season. Lord, we celebrate that. We celebrate the beauty of who you are and all that you've done in our lives. And today, God, as we get ready to end this service, Lord,